Hello, this is John Sloat and Rory McLeod. You're listening to HAE Radio, a show exploring the realities of life with HAE in Canada. In today's episode, we'll be discussing access to care. You will hear from experts from Canada and around the world talk about their work to improve access to care in their respective jurisdictions. Before we move forward, we briefly need to define what access to care means. Access to care is the ease with which an individual can obtain medical services. There are three general measures to assess access to care, availability, utilization, and outcomes. Availability is a measure of how easy it is for a patient to secure resources and services that facilitate appropriate health care. Utilization is the degree to which people use the services that are available to them. Finally, outcomes is measured by the degree to which patients feel that their needs have been understood and met. For example, if a patient feels that they are receiving the right care in a timely fashion, that qualifies as a positive outcome. In order to get a better understanding of access to care in a Canadian context, we spoke with Jurhan Wong Rieger. She's the president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, also known as CORD. CORD provides a strong common voice to advocate for health policy and a health care system that works for those with rare disorders, including HAE. We asked Durhane to give us a snapshot of the current state of access to care here in Canada. Certainly in Canada, rare disorders fits obviously with any of the comprehensive care programs. So basically Canada does have a very good system for providing care um, from everything from, you know, early diagnosis to um, access to specialists to supportive uh, care from whether it's general practitioners or other allied health professionals, you know, therapists, et cetera. Um, and in general, a reasonable um, pharmaceutical program. The challenge is for rare disorders is that it oftentimes falls through the cracks. Um, we often say in Canada, if you have a fairly common condition, and you don't have any extraordinary needs, you're going to be very well looked after. But if you have a more rare condition or if your needs are more um, critical or if you've got other kinds of extenuating circumstances, it may be very difficult both to navigate the system and find the right care, but even to have the care available. So we know that in Canada, one of the surveys we did just very recently, responses from you know well over 600 patients, living with rare diseases, find, found that, you know, it can take anywhere from six months to maybe 12, 14 years to get the right diagnosis, and that patients will generally get two or three and maybe up to seven wrong diagnoses before they get to the right one. So the challenge we've got in Canada with regard to rare disorders is that the system designed to provide sort of for that middle range of patients is not well set up and not even, you know, kind of allowing for um, those who have much more specific needs or have much more challenging needs. Could you speak more specifically to how this affects rare blood disorders? Now, the blood conditions have been one of the best organized um, networks in Canada, and some of that is historical. Some of that is based in terms of the type of conditions in which you've got family units involved. Some of it, unfortunately, is based in the tragedy. When we think about the uh, whole tainted blood issue affecting anybody who might have received um, blood or um, you know, derived blood products. Um, I would say that blood disorders in Canada are 
better take better known, better taken care of, and have better organized systems of clinics than many of the other rare disorders. Thanks for sharing, Durhane. We'll check back with you later. Now that we've heard a summary of some of the access to care barriers that affect patients nationwide, it's important to remember that all Canadian rare disease communities face their own unique challenges based on their own unique circumstances. The HAE community is no different. In order to explore what access to care barriers HAE patients encounter, we reached out to Dr. Keith to get a specialist's perspective. Yeah, my name is Paul Keith, and I'm an allergist and immunologist from Hamilton, Ontario, and I work at McMaster University. So, Dr. Keith, could you tell us a little bit about access to care here in Canada? Well, in Canada, we have C1 inhibitor concentrate now licensed for a little over two years now. And that is controlled uh, by the Red Cross and the blood banks. So in Canada, patients don't have to pay for C1 inhibitor concentrate uh, like they would have to in the United States. Uh, But it is controlled by the blood banks. And province to province, uh, there are different rules uh, governing how it is distributed to the patients. Here in Ontario, uh, which is the largest province, Uh, We now um, allow the blood banks to dispense C1 inhibitor directly to patients, and they can infuse it uh, in their home uh, intravenously. Uh, They don't necessarily have to come into the hospital, into the medical daycare unit, or into the emergency room uh, to receive a product, Uh, but uh, that may be the case elsewhere in Canada. If we're going to look at access to care in terms of utilization, do you find that patients prefer to use services at home or services available in a hospital or clinic? It really depends on the patient. Uh, some of the pa- most of the patients who have frequent attacks have been trained to administer the product intravenously to themselves and thus can do it in their home. Uh, some Rarely we have some patients who can't be trained and they can come into the medical daycare unit and receive the product. Some patients really have very infrequent attacks and they only go to the emergency room or the medical daycare unit for uh, treatment of attacks. Those patients might only have one attack a year. And then in Canada, we also have access to Icatabant or Firazir, which is administered subcutaneously. And most of my patients have been trained uh, to give themselves Icatabant. Um, It is covered by private drug plans, and it is covered for type 1 and type 2 patients by the government drug plan. Unfortunately, type 3 patients don't have uh, coverage through our government drug plan, and many of the private plans now are not covering it although initially they did, and some patients, some plans will still cover it. Okay, so building upon the previous question, I was wondering how geography plays a role in terms of access to care barriers. Well, I have heard that some, some provinces um, have insisted that the patients come to eMERGE and uh, receive the product only, um, and certainly even some cities in Ontario, certain hospitals, uh, didn't have the... Um, procedures in place to dispense to the patient. Um, but it, it really varies province to province. We've been very fortunate on a, in Ontario, in particular in our own area uh, here in Hamilton, that patients have had access to the product. Are there any gaps in access to care that you think need to be addressed? Uh, I think it's still uh, the main issue is type 3 patients with hereditary angioedema. Um, 
they can have very uh, severe uh, throat attacks and not having access to Icatavent is a real problem. And uh, fortunately, they do have access to C1 inhibitor, but they, uh, in many cases, don't have access to Icatavent. And so that, uh, that is really a gap in care. It's really a gap in our evidence, uh, that we really need evidence uh, that is beneficial in these patients. And we need to do more studies uh, to prove this uh, so that they will have access to care. Based on your experience, what are some of the steps that are being taken to address access to care barriers in your jurisdiction? Well, here in Ontario, initially some of the blood banks didn't have the procedures uh, in place to distribute product uh, to the patients. And it took a long time uh, for them to develop the procedures so that their hospital could dispense product to their patients. Otherwise, the patient had to come to the emergency room if they wanted product. And patients who really had frequent attacks, this became uh, really too cumbersome for them. And uh, luckily, we really were able to work with our blood bank, and we were able to develop the procedures quite quickly where uh, product could be dispensed to patients, and they could administer it in their own home. Um, And now, in Ontario, we're very fortunate uh, that we can write a prescription, uh, the patient can go to their local blood bank, they can pick up their product, often a three-month supply, and then administer the product in their home. Or if they can't uh, find a vein, they could take the product to their nearest emergency room and get the product administered. Uh, so this is a, a big change and a real improvement for our patients. To wrap things up, what do you think are the next steps that need to be taken to address access to care for patients in your area? Well, I think that we're still educating many of the patients how they can better manage their condition uh, by uh, giving a C1 inhibitor to control their symptoms. Often uh, they'll accept um, symptoms uh, and miss work or miss school and uh, won't uh, control their disease adequately. And so uh, we still have a ways to go, even with our own patients where they have access uh, to C1 inhibitor. Uh, I think that, the, um, uh, that we soon will have good evidence that uh, subcutaneous C1 inhibitor uh, will control their symptoms, and that may offer an alternative to our patients who don't want to give product to themselves intravenously, uh, sometimes twice a week, in order to control their symptoms. Well, thank you, Dr. Keith, for your thoughts on access to care in your area. After the break, we'll shift focus and explore access to care for HAE patients on a global scale. Well, hello there. My name is Henrik Balleboysen, and I'm the Executive Director of HAEI. HAEI, or Hereditary Angioedema International, is an organization dedicated to raising awareness of C1 inhibitor deficiencies around the world. We asked Henrik about the challenges that face HAE patients in terms of access to care. Well, um, I mean, currently uh, we are very fortunate with HAE because we have five modern therapies that are approved to treat HAE. Two of them are plasma-derived, one recombinant C1 inhibitor, uh, a bradykinin receptor antagonist, and a calicoin inhibitor. But unfortunately, 
there is a significant variation in access to these medicines throughout the world. And that's why we see many patients in countries who are limited to short uh, or even long-term prophylactic treatment with attenuated antigens or tranexamic acid. And tragically, there are altogether too many countries who has absolutely access to no HAE treatments. The problem is that, that we may have those five modern medicines available and that are approved, but they are FDA-approved and they are EMA-approved. And so countries who are not controlled under those two um, uh, uh, offices, they, they, they kind of just don't get access to, 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 to medicines these days. And that's, there are a few exceptions, of course, Canada being one of them and Australian. New Zealand um, and uh, a number of others, but but we still see many many countries where, because there are no regulation uh, regulated bodies, or because they are not actively involved with this, that that's simply the reason for people not having access today. Moving forward, what is HAEI's role in affecting change? From HAEI's perspective, uh, uh, the most important thing for us is to get medication to patients. So this is all a question about getting access to therapies and getting access to therapies in a reimbursed way. So, of course, we can't solve all the problems in the world in one shot, but what we initiated uh, already last year and what we are running now is the HAI Global Access Program. It's the first of its kind medication distribution program, and it's the first time that a patient organization uh, actually provides an opportunity and a mechanism for physicians to bring modern HAE medication to the patients in the countries where these therapies are otherwise unavailable. At the moment, we are providing the Global Access Program on a global basis. We are providing it as a named patient program, which means that there still needs to be mechanisms in the different countries for a reimbursement uh, for the patients. Um, but we are also looking at expanding these services together with the medical uh, uh, industry uh, into both what we call compassionate use, where we um, have a program running for countries who can absolutely not afford anything um, to, to uh, receive medication free of charge, and uh, for what we call early access programs, uh, which means that as an extension to a clinical trial, that we can provide medication to patients in uh, countries around the world. Henrik identified three regulatory systems that affect access to care for patients around the globe. First are countries that follow recommendations from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the USA, or the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, in the European Union. Second are those countries that do not have access to treatments because they do not have regulatory bodies that are actively involved with HAE. Last are countries that have independent regulatory agencies that actively review HAE medications. These include Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Each regulatory category presents its own challenges. Since Canada falls in the final category, we reached out to HAE Australasia as they have similar challenges to those we face here in Canada, both in terms of availability of treatment options and geographical constraints like population densities and rural-urban divides. I'm Fiona Wardman from HAE Australasia. I'm the president of the organization and... Most of what we do is patient advocacy, education, and making sure the patients get the right care. What are some of the challenges that face HAE patients when accessing care? 
So here in Australia, uh, we have access to um, different types of treatments. So we have uh, prophylactic medications in steroids and transamic acids. Um, we also have access to Firazine, like Etabed. We're about to become. Um, sorry, C1 is about to become available to us to a certain um, group of patients, which is something we haven't had before. Um, in hospitals, we still come across the issue where uh, the hospitals don't want to spend the money on treating the patients. They don't understand HE. So it's very hard to get across to the doctors and, and nurses there exactly what uh, we need. So education is something that we, you know, focusing on here. All right, well, the follow-up question to that one is we'd like to ask you, how has your organization affected change for HAE patients? Our group's been quite effective in, in making change here in Australia and in New Zealand. Uh, we actually look after both, after both countries. In Australia, uh, the, the big pharmaceutical companies have tried to get Sirizirite-Cataband across the line for reimbursement. However, it wasn't until the patient organisation got involved that it actually got passed. And recently with uh, C1, the same thing's happened. It sat there in, with the National Blood Authority for many, many years. And it wasn't until we got involved um, again that it was, that we've now got uh, accessibility to that. In New Zealand, they only had a couple of things, uh, steroids and transamic acid, and just recently been passed there that they get Verizir, and that is also due to um, the patient organisation. Um, how has the access to treatment um, and access to care changed since you became involved in the HAE community? Um, well, other than getting access to more treatment, um, helping the medical community know uh, about HAE and being helping them become aware of the symptoms and how it needs to be treated, and that's something that we do by going along to different events that are held for medical professionals. So it's a, a long road, but we have made some inroads, thankfully, and there is some great doctors that we have around Australia and in New Zealand who are really focusing on HAE patients and getting what we need. All right, last question. Uh, in your opinion, what would you still like to see changed in terms of access to care for patients? That's an easy one. Okay, so options for patients. Um, we still have limited accessibility to the different types of drugs available for, these, for this disorder. Um, obviously not one size fits all when it comes to HAE patients. So it would be nice to be able to have any medication that any patient needs or is comfortable using uh, at their disposal. We're still a long way off that, but it is looking a lot brighter than it did a few years ago. Great. Um, just a quick thought. Are there, are there anything or is there anything other than uh, treatment that you'd like to see changed? Um, maybe like more awareness amongst the, the ER communities or, or something like that? Yes, we'd like to see a little bit more education done at the ground level with uh, regards to GP. Um, we, we have been lucky that we've been involved in an initiative 
with one of our uh, organisations here in Australia and New Zealand who look after uh, certain types of immunology um, disorders and so forth. Uh, and they have put together an e-learning tool, but there's still a lot more work to be done to make sure that in the colleges, when the doctors go there, they at least hear about HAE. Uh, they may never ever see a patient in their lifetime, but if it's in the back of their mind that they've heard about it, they know what tests need to be run to determine whether the patient has got HAE or not, and then obviously access to better care and an earlier diagnosis, which, you know, I think all around the world is something that we struggle with. Um, for me, it took 33 years to be diagnosed and it would be nice if, you know, somebody had a, uh, a test when they were born and they could see, for instance, if they had HAE or any other um, disease that could be treated with, an, with a treatment. We'd like to take a moment to tell you about the HAE Attack Tracker app. If you or anyone you know has HAE, this free tool can help them record attacks, take pictures of affected areas, and generate reports that can be sent to a treating physician. You can find a link to the app in the Our Projects section of our website. It can also be found on Google Play and iTunes. After hearing from national and international rare disease organizations about how they tackle access to care, we turn back to Durhan Wong Rieger for a snapshot of some of the initiatives that CORD currently has underway. CORD is the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, and it is a network, an umbrella organization for patient organizations. We have individual members, we have um, so individual patients or individual researchers, clinicians, but primarily we see ourselves as actually bringing together the rare disease, the organized rare disease community. We have 100 plus patient organizations that belong to CORD. CORD's main role is to advance uh, national policy on rare disorders, to um, network and to provide training and support to the patient organizations, and also to try to advance um, certainly best practices and advanced um, standards of care uh, for rare diseases uh, across the, the whole spectrum of it. So we try to work on, on behalf of all the rare disease groups, but we also try to provide the support to the rare disease organizations themselves so that they can also take a more effective role either working at a policy level or um, supporting their, their members and their, their patient population. I know the CORD has recently released its uh, rare disease strategy. Um, could you give us a, a quick little overview of what that is and how you think that it's going to affect the, the rare disease world in Canada? Thank you. The um, CORD, um, over the course of the last three, three and a half years, has been consulting to develop Canada's rare disease strategy. It is very much aligned with national plans, national strategies that the European Union countries have been developing quite frankly, over the last five or six years. So we really feel that it picks up on all of the, the important elements from other countries that are having you know, public, um, publicly funded healthcare systems. Yeah, there are five main pillars in the rare disease strategy, the first of which is screening and prevention, so improving everything from newborn screening to now, of course, including genomics and genetic testing so that we can do a better job in terms of not only diagnosing patients, 
but also being able to provide consultation so that we can actually prevent either disease progression or emergence of symptoms, or in some cases, of course, preventing um, the emergence of a, of a disease and providing that advice to, to parents ahead of time. Second pillar is on best care and practices. So the idea is to try to do a bit of what some of the, uh, you know, very good uh, blood disorders clinics have been able to do, providing centers of excellence, providing best practice guidelines, doing training into not only the specialty community, but also training into the GP, pediatric, and the other allied professions to ensure that patients get the best possible care, um, you know, for their specific disorder and access to the right uh, specialists, whether remotely or, um, to, you know, over much more directly. Third uh, component is uh, community support, which includes largely patient organizations, empowering and supporting patient organizations to be able to provide the direct support to their member communities, but also increasing their capacity to liaise with the um, the other stakeholders, the other the researchers, clinicians, etc., to be able to be part of the overall develop, um, delivery of, of care and, and uh, services. Fourth pillar is access to therapies, which is hugely important because we know that um, new therapies are are emerging, and we need to make sure that uh, Canada is also um, in line in terms of get attracting therapies. Canada, being part of research and development clinical trials, making them available to patients, and this is, of course, a, a, a hugely important avenue, not only for the patients to get access, but also to ensure that we're getting the, the um, therapies in Canada as soon as possible and making them available to as broad a community as appropriate. And the last component, of course, is research and continue to foster and support research. One of the direct assets to ensure that Canada, through their CIHR, the Institute for Health Research, that there are dedicated funds for rare disease research and that we can leverage uh, the funds that, in many cases, um, a charitable organizations have also been raising in order to leverage them to, to actually be able to provide a bigger impact in terms of rare diseases. With those five pillars, we believe that we can actually advance in terms of a comprehensive platform for um, for you know, improving in all areas in terms of patient access. And it really does require, I think, all of those pillars in order for us to be able to adequately recognize and to address rare diseases. Really positioning, yeah, I think rare diseases in the same way as cancer or diabetes or cardiovascular disease as a major health care issue or a public health issue in Canada. How do you think that initiatives such as the rare disease strategy will affect change for HAE patients in Canada? HAE community is one of the, I think, fortunate communities in terms of where, um, I think, best practice guidelines are now, where care treatment is coming forward, and quite frankly, we are just so very impressed with how well um, the HAE community has become organized and become a strong advocacy voice. Um, you know, I can remember some of the early stages in, um, in the development and in, in, uh, both clinicians and the patients trying to come together. And it, it takes a while to really develop, I think, a viable community. And HAE has done a tremendous job in terms of um, advocating on behalf of having you know, clinical care and, and access to to development of, uh, of guidelines, et cetera. But also, I think, um, playing a part in terms of where the overall movement in terms of rare diseases is taking place in Canada 
And, of course, very fortunate in terms of having some therapies that are coming forth. And that, I think, is, is uh, always very important for the community because when therapies come forth, it not only provides opportunities for patients to get treated to have, you know, increased commitment and hope, but it also does bring in additional resources, and uh, both in terms of expertise and in terms of um, actual, you know, resources to support, you know, patient care and treatment. So I think HAE moved itself into a very good spot um, when some of these new therapies were coming in. We were able to take advantage of it and really have now, I think, organized well to continue to attract um, therapies as they're being developed. Because if we don't have a viable community in, you know, in, in any country, or certainly in Canada, you know, you know, researchers and companies don't really want to come because they are not going to get the support for bringing their product in. So I think, you know, HAE is, um, has done tremendously well in terms of uh, aligning with the opportunities. And at the same time, we're just very, very, um, I think, thrilled to have HAE as part of the core community because um, it also contributes to the overall advancement of the policies. and. And um, in terms of support for why we need to, you know, a welcome framework and why we need to have a, a broader rare disease strategy. So HAE sits in my mind as one of those small jewels that we have in the uh, Canadian rare disease uh, landscape. And on that note, let's take a moment to reflect on the things we heard in this episode. It's easy to get caught up in the specific challenges that we face here in Canada without acknowledging the strides that have been made with regards to access to care. Nevertheless, there are still areas that need improvement. We need to continue to work towards equitable access to care, regardless of location. We also need to work with the scientific community to promote and create research opportunities. In particular, this would benefit patients with type 3 HAE, as they currently do not have a clear path to diagnosis and treatment. Clearly, access to care has come a long way in Canada, but it is still an ongoing issue for the HAE community. Thank you for listening to today's episode of HAE Radio. With the help of some of our partners at home and abroad, we got a better understanding of the state of access to care around the globe. If you're interested in learning more about HAE Canada or HAE as a condition, please visit our website, haecanada.org. There you can become a member, and membership is free and open to everyone in the HAE community. That is, HAE patients, their family members, friends, caregivers, and also HAE healthcare providers. Once again, membership is free. Resources are available from our office and you can contact us at any time. We look forward to hearing from you. The making of this episode would not have been possible without the help of our partners at HAEI, HAE Australasia, and CORD. HAE Radio is made possible by the support of our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Shire, and BioChrist. We would also like to thank our partner, HAEI, for their continued support. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at haeradio at haecanada.org. HAE Radio is an HAE Canada production.